Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. I wanted to talk a little bit today about what's going on on the domestic front. I know all eyes are on Ukraine, as the government would like them to be, seeing as this is a country that has really nothing to do at all with our interests, although what's going on there is the direct result of meddling by the U.S. State Department in their elections, in their foreign policy, and just about everything that they accuse Vladimir Putin of doing, the U.S. State Department has done in Ukraine and several other countries by an order of magnitude more. But today I want to just talk about the jobs report that came out on Friday and also Jay Powell's testimony to Congress. And for everybody who's new, if you've read my book, It's the Fed Stupid, a lot of people joined in order to get a free download copy of that book. If you haven't, then go to itsthefedstupid.com and do download a copy for free. Or if you haven't got a chance to read it all, I do talk about the jobs report in the book and how unscientific, for lack of a better word, it is. It's not that somebody is out there counting how many jobs were actually created. They do a phone survey. They try to determine from the phone survey how many new businesses were created and how many businesses went out of business. And using the net of that number, they assume they created an average number of jobs. It's like climate models or the COVID models at the very beginning of the pandemic. No, you take them for a grain of salt. But considering that they are still using the same methodology, more or less, than they always have, it has some value just saying, well, this is buckshot. It doesn't mean a heck of a lot, but whatever it means, it means the same thing it did 10 years ago when they were still using the same phone surveys and methodology to get these numbers. The big news was that the economy created 678,000 jobs in February, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And of course, this is a very big number in the history of this chart. I just took an average from 2015 through 2019. So those five years before the pandemic started, and the average per month was 193,000 jobs. So 
Of course, someone like Joe Biden is going to say, boy, oh boy, it's three times the number of jobs we averaged before the pandemic. Well, yeah, a lot of people are returning to their jobs. They continue to return to their jobs since we lost 20 million of them in April of 2020. And that was on top of almost 1.5 million jobs lost in March of 2020. So we had a huge loss of jobs as the lockdowns were put in place in reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, of course, we had huge jobs numbers with people returning to their jobs in the months after that. We got 2.6 million jobs back in May of 2020, 4.5 million back in June, and so on. So that kind of puts some perspective on this 678,000 number. Yeah, it's three and a half times what we usually have in the average month, but it's somewhat typical for the amount of jobs that we've gained since losing all those jobs in 2020. And I have talked about this before, but I'll just remind everyone that the way 2020 netted out is that we lost 9.3 million jobs. That counts the 20 million lost in April, the uh, 1.5 million lost in March, and then all the jobs we then gained back for the rest of 2020. So we came out at a negative 9.3 million in 2020. We got 6.7 million of those jobs back in 2021. So we're still down jobs. And since then, just eyeballing the BLS jobs report chart that I have here, it looks like we got back about 1.2 million of those jobs so far this year. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with just under 1.4 million jobs less than we had back in March of 2020. And it's not just a matter that we're down those 1.4 million jobs. You have to also subtract the 193,000 new jobs on average we would have had in all the months since then. So now we're talking another 22 months since then. So really, if you do that math, we're down 4.2 million jobs that were never created over that time. Plus, you've got your 1.4 million that are still lost, that still haven't come back. So you're looking at about 5.6 million less jobs than we would have had had the lockdowns for the pandemic never occurred. And now that we know that the lockdowns actually didn't save any lives, you really have to think about how damaging that approach to the pandemic was. And I actually wrote an article, and I'll post this on the show notes page, way back in either March or April of 2020, I believe it was early April, maybe April 4th, where I said, when this is all over, is anyone going to blame the government for the damage that they've done? Because they not only ordered everybody to not produce anything for an extended period of time, and don't forget, it's not just, okay, that was an economic crisis during that time, but it was also that they weren't producing capital goods and other higher order goods that would then be used for further production in the future. So this has a huge knock-on effect to where we are today 
And all this supply chain disruption is really just fallout from taking the economy and shutting it down like that. You don't just start it back up like a car because that car would have been 500 miles down the road had you not done that. So this was terribly destructive and we compounded it by trying to live in the dream world where you can tell everybody to stop producing, but that they can go on consuming like they did before. That's really where the compound effect of the lockdowns occurred economically, because had we told everybody this disease is so bad that you're going to have to stay home from work, well, then we would have had to live with the consequences, which is a lot less goods produced. If you were going to try and dole out a minimum income to all the people you ordered home, then you're going to have to tax the people that were still working at a higher rate. There is no way to get around trade-offs, right? Scarcity doesn't stop and pause because you've panicked over a respiratory virus. So we've tried to live in a dream world for almost a year as far as the lockdowns were concerned. And of course, now we're feeling all the effects, including price inflation. And I want to emphasize too that we would not be seeing price inflation without the money printing. Because had we lived in reality where people would have to consume less if some people were producing nothing for a defined period of time, then of course that drop in consumption would have resulted in a deflationary effect on prices. So we didn't get that. And it's somewhat related to the business cycle. It's just like when the Federal Reserve tries to stimulate the economy with monetary inflation instead of stimulus come from savings. See, when people save, that means that they're not consuming as much or they're not consuming what they otherwise might consume. And therefore, you build up inventories of goods. You have a deflationary effect on prices. And that's what allows for entrepreneurs to expand the productive structure. In the old Robinson Crusoe story, where he has to not eat as many berries every day as he picks, so he'll have some left over to fashion a berry-picking stick or however you want to tell the story. That very simplistic idea doesn't change in a complex economy. You still have to have savings in order to stop producing consumer goods and expand production. Otherwise, economic laws do not wait and say, oh, they're expanding production. Let's suspend supply and demand right now. It just doesn't work that way. And it's the same thing with the lockdowns. So it's only because we printed all that money and try to pretend that we could order a large percentage of the population to stop producing anything and still not have any effect. We're paying instead of in higher taxes then with price inflation now. So that raises the question of what are we going to do about the price inflation? And of course, on a previous podcast, I did talk about the fact that the Fed is really between a rock and a hard place because they are at 0% interest rates. They have an enormous balance sheet that is orders of magnitude larger than it was 10, 12 years ago, but they have price inflation. So we're back into that box, the stagflation box of the late 1970s, early 1980s, where Paul Volcker eventually raised interest rates to 19%. 
in order to break the back of inflation. What's Jay Powell talking about doing? He's talking about raising them 0.25%, one quarter of 1% this month. And he was asked in his recent testimony if he was going to start shrinking his balance sheet. And let me just remind people or for newcomers who haven't gotten to this point and and it's the Fed stupid as well, there didn't used to be a separation between shrinking the balance sheet and raising the interest rate because it used to be a matter where when the Fed wanted to raise the interest rate, let's say a half a percentage point, what they would do is just sell securities to the banks, which would result, of course, in that security coming off of the Fed's balance sheet and cash, the equivalent in cash, coming out of the depositor funds at the bank. And what happened was with quantitative easing after the 2008 financial crash, the banks built up large deposits at the Federal Reserve that had never existed before. So you have this pool of money that is not the same as depositors' funds that the banks are holding, but you have this other pool of money that are basically their bank account at the Fed. So instead of just selling securities to the bank, and they have no choice, by the way, when the Fed does this, to pull cash out of their depositors' funds and force the interest rate up that way since it makes money more scarce, the Fed now just adjusts the interest it pays to those banks at their Federal Reserve accounts with the logic that if the Fed is paying 0.25% interest on those accounts, the bank's accounts with the Fed, that the bank is, of course, not going to lend out for anything less than 0.25%. They're going to not lend out for less than 0.3% or 0.5%, whatever. And then when the Fed raises that rate a quarter point, it pays the banks more on their deposits. Let's say it raises it from 0.25 to 0.5. They then know that the banks are not going to lend out money at anything less than 0.5% interest, because why would they? There's risk lending it out. The 0.5% from the Federal Reserve is guaranteed. And remember, this is all just fiat money. But in any case, the Fed is now able to affect the interest rate without changing the nature of its balance sheet. It will simply raise the amount of interest it's paying its member banks by 0.25%, and that will target more directly the interest rate that banks demand from each other for the overnight Fed funds rate. And that's the rate that the Fed is targeting It's the interest rate that banks charge each other to borrow funds, mostly overnight, sometimes for longer periods of time, to meet their various obligations. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, It helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. 
You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. Work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. So the Fed no longer automatically shrinks its balance sheet by raising interest rates. It simply slows down or decreases the amount of loans going out into the public by raising that rate. So supply and demand, again, we've got a higher interest rate now, and that has a tightening effect. But what we really need to do is deal with the $16 trillion in new money that was created in the last two years and that's sitting out there on M1. We're starting to see the effects of that in price inflation, but we may have a lot longer to go depending on what the Fed can do. So of course, raising interest rates 0.25% is not going to have any measurable effect on price inflation. If you've got price inflation running at a 7.5% annual rate, then you've got to raise the Fed funds rate a lot more than 0.25% to have any appreciable effect on it. You don't have to have it above 7-5% necessarily because the rate that's being charged outside the banking system is higher than that. But certainly, again, our historical perspective is it took Paul Volcker taking the interest rates to 20 in order to break the back of inflation back in 1980. And the inflation that we're experiencing today, really, if you measured it the same way as they measured it back then, it's worse So, of course, we had double-digit inflation back then, but it was measured differently. So you either have to measure it today the same way as you did back then or go back to the inflation of the late 70s and early 80s and measure that with today's yardstick and you'll get a lower number. You'll get one that's below 7.5%. So really, we're in a very bad situation because... Unlike back in the late 70s and early 80s, we don't have huge trade surpluses. We don't have huge savings like we used to. We used to be a creditor nation. Now we've got enormous amounts of debt. So we're really in a bad spot. And Jay Powell knows that. He's going to dance around through as many press conferences as he can. But the bottom line is we're either going to have to tighten monetary conditions considerably And that means pulling a lot of excess money and credit out of the system that might bring down price inflation, but then the effect of that is going to be to contract the economy and, of course, find out at that point all of the malinvestment that has occurred really since 2008. We've never had a correction that cleaned any of that out. We've just been living on the dream that all of this monetary inflation can solve it, but it doesn't because you have to remember the bust is the cure. The recession is the cure, as I've said before on many podcasts, and the unemployment is part of the cure, the people losing their jobs because they're at jobs that don't have the utility to be profitable on their own. 
We have to have this reckoning of the malinvestment that has occurred over the past 14 years. And of course, no politicians ever want that to happen. And that's why when Donald Trump ran for president, he was complaining that he was keeping Obama's numbers up with monetary inflation. But as soon as he got in there, he started cheerleading the stock market and the unemployment numbers and started yelling at Jay Powell for the very small amount of tightening he did during 2018. I want to say also, and I did mention this the last time we talked about the Fed, is how they're never right. And even in this last press conference, Jay Powell admitted that, of course, the Fed was wrong again. And I'm going to read you what he said in his testimony. He uses the word it, and I've just got this excerpt from an article reporting on his testimony. The it he's talking about is quantitative easing, which is printing more money <laughs> basically, and buying more securities with the printed money to inject into the economy and stimulate it. And of course, that is what causes price inflation. You'll never actually hear him say those words, but implicit in what I'm about to read to you and everything that he says about the Fed policy, it's assumed that printing money and injecting it into the economy raises prices, but you'll never hear him say that. He always comes up with an excuse for why prices are rising other than the Federal Reserve's activities. But he said, by the middle of last year, we started to move away from it. Again, it being quantitative easing. And we moved away from it at an increasing rate of speed. Hindsight says we should have moved earlier, and that turned out to be wrong. Not maybe conceptually wrong, but it's just taking so much longer for the supply side to heal than we thought. So in hindsight, you certainly wouldn't have done that. But I think we were, there is really no precedent for this. We looked at it the way it was. There were certainly some voices and they've turned out to be right. So that is a little word salady. And I've seen the testimony, so I understand it a little bit better in context than it sounds if I just read it from an article that quotes him. But what he's basically saying is, a lot of people said that all this monetary inflation was going to cause price inflation, which of course it has. And what Powell said before the passage that I just read was they were looking at this like an oil shock, like when there's a huge drop in the supply of oil, then you get a price increase that will, of course, reverse once the supply of oil is back to normal. And that's the way the Fed was looking at it that with the lockdowns, there was a huge drop in the supply of everything. But again, there was no huge drop in the supply of dollars. That's why this was not going to be temporary price inflation unless the Fed took all those dollars back. He still operates in this Keynesian framework. Part of what he was saying in the middle of that was it took so long for the supply side to heal so in other words, he thinks that they can't stop inflating because he thinks that heals the supply side until supply is back to where it was. He's got all kinds of bad assumptions mixed in with his comments here, but even using his own bad assumptions, he still admits that the Fed goofed up again. They're always behind the inflation curve when there is one, and they were behind the recession in 2008. They're always wrong. Now, when he did his December meeting, I did a podcast on that. And during the December meeting, he said that we were wrong about what we said three months before. 
Well, here he is again saying they were wrong again. The Fed is never right. And it's not just a matter that they have a really hard job and why don't you try it yourself? No, even if you accept all of the Keynesian nonsense that underpins having the Federal Reserve in the first place, the Fed still cannot be effective unless it's right about its predictions for the future. So if it's never right, then even on its own terms, the Fed is a useless institution that causes nothing but economic damage. One more thing the Fed is wrong about, Jay Powell also says the economy is strong. He said the economy is very strong. Unemployment is low, which it is. It's at 3.8% the way they measure it now, not the way they measured it back in the 1970s and 80s again, or it would be much higher than that. But the way they've measured it for a while now, it's down getting close to where it was in 2019. Wages are going up. The labor market is quite healthy and inflation is all too high. So we're responsible we're accountable for inflation and we're going to use our tools to bring it down. That's what Jay Powell said. So when he says that the economy is strong, Powell is operating on the Keynesian framework where if the economy is too strong, that produces price inflation. Of course, no, printing money produces price inflation. But in his world, the economy is just running on all cylinders. And now it's time to dampen that a little with monetary tightening. But the question is, if the economy is really as strong as he says it is, why is he only doing a quarter point rate hike? Why isn't he shrinking his balance sheet right away? Because he knows that that's going to expose, well, maybe he doesn't know, but that will expose all the malinvestment that's occurred during this massive monetary tidal wave. And of course, that'll show that the economy is not strong. Has there been real recovery? Of course there has. There always is after a crisis, but the Fed comes in and distorts it and doesn't allow it to completely heal itself with monetary inflation. Nothing the Fed says is even internally consistent. We're in for probably a rough ride over the next few years. The only good news is that the European Central Bank is even worse, and Europe might, by comparison, do even worse than we will. And you're seeing that somewhat in the dollar strengthening a little bit right now, even after such huge monetary inflation, because people are fleeing other currencies like the euro. The dollar may be the healthiest horse in the glue factory right now, but just remember, even the healthiest horse in the glue factory eventually gets turned into glue. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.